We're broadcasting live from the World Outlook Conference at the Western Bayshore in downtown Vancouver. Uh, we have a sold-out crowd here. And by the way, if you couldn't make it down, just go to moneytalks.net. You can uh, get the video. It's going to be up, uh, uploaded on Monday, so you can get the hot stuff coming out. And there's lots to come. Today I'm talking with Martin Armstrong. I'm also uh, waiting to hear what Joseph Schachter has to say about the oil market. Uh, incredible sellout last night. Uh, you couldn't. It was more than standing room only. It was got a shoehorn and forced people uh, into the room. I think the fire marshal is still having a heart attack, but glad to see that. And I think there's tremendous interest and for good reason. One of the things we've been talking about on Money Talks for a while, and, and uh, I did a presentation myself about four years ago, saying that you needed to use all the tools in the toolbox to survive the kind of chaos that I was seeing. And, of course, uh, one of those tools is to use the option market, which is why we've uh, done so much more work on it. And I'll just tell you, tomorrow, if you're in Vancouver, we are putting on an adjunct to the Outlook Conference, and it's all about options. So uh, it's a two-hour complimentary uh, program. It's at 10 a.m. and goes to noon down at the Western Bayshore. But you have to register, and you do that by going to moneytalks.net click on the Desjardins online brokerage banner there and uh, put your name in. We have room for about 75 more people total, though, uh, of the complimentary variety there. So uh, this is a great start. Joining me on the line right now, I've got Jason Ayers, president and founder of LearnToTradeGlobal.com. Jason, let's just go very quickly. I'm always coming back to this because I don't think people take full advantage of it. And the bottom line is, you know, is options uh, trading as risky or the strategies you employ? I mean, what's the story on that? Uh, you know, uh, Michael, and thanks for having me on the show. It, it's like any other financial instrument. If you don't understand uh, how to use them properly, then there, there are risks associated with it. But, you know, ultimately the way we use options is to uh, mitigate risk or offset risk and enhance cash flow. And in this current market environment, um, that's the objective. Uh, so, well, the cash flow um, side is huge, Jason. I mean, yeah, you know, absolutely. people are that isn't that the story? I mean, we chronicled earlier, of course, Japan going negative with their interest rates. Oh, but, yeah. you know, people yeah. look around. We've got the low growth numbers coming out of the gross domestic product was uh, revised downward again by the Bank of Canada yeah. coming into the first quarter. We're going to get more of that. Yeah. In other words, there's no upward pressure on in interest rates. And people want well, more than that one and a half percent kind of deal. Well, I'll tell you. And, and uh, back on December 9th, the Bank of Canada suggested that uh, they wouldn't uh, be adverse to pushing interest rates in Canada below zero if uh, faced with an economic uh, crisis. So, I mean, we're dealing with some unique times here, and people need to uh, look at the other tools available to them to, to meet their objectives, or else it's, it's, it's going to get uh, challenging. We've talked about this on the air uh, another couple of times in this way. So, I, I mean, again, uh, one of the things that I think is positive, if you find a company that you've got a lot of confidence in, and then, you know, I'm talking about major companies. Maybe they have a 4 or 5% dividend. Then you get and you start writing what are called covered call options, giving someone the right to purchase that stock. And you choose the price. You choose the time frame. But that's a great way of throwing another 2 or 3 or 4% onto, the value, or onto your yield in that year. Uh, absolutely. You know, you, you, you look at the market environment, you, uh, you know, you find yourself some defensive stocks that are paying a decent dividend, and then you implement a, a covered call strategy on that. And uh, absolutely, you can enhance your, yield, uh, enhance your yield quite significantly over the course of a year. Well, tomorrow down at the Western Base Room in Vancouver, you're going to be talking about, uh, first of all, you'll start with what the it's kind of the themes of 2016 are, you know, the market forecast. Give us a, a preview of that. 
Absolutely. You know, I mean, we, we're living in some interesting times, as the old saying suggests, and, uh, you know, uh, we're going to take a, a broad-based look at, uh, you know, the global macro fundamentals um, and then distill it down to, you know, where we think the opportunities are for investors to, uh, you know, when considering these uh, unique circumstances and uh, really looking forward to, to seeing everybody uh, out here uh, tomorrow morning. And, and the other thing is that you're going to give specific trade ideas to show how it works. And, and again, I would just encourage people uh, that this is very straightforward. It's just if you're not familiar with it, you need to have it introduced. Well, uh, you know, Jason has a real expertise in explaining this stuff. But give us, give us one of your examples, for say. Well, we, we actually used an example, uh, um, you know, yesterday uh, at, uh, during our talk here on uh, AT&T. Um, you know uh, the idea of, um, of of buying the shares, um, yeah. you know, and and subsequently just you know a bit of a defensive stock, um, and and just selling a uh, an option. Uh, the idea that uh, you know you sell sell somebody the right to own the shares at a higher price than where it's at, you get paid uh, uh, a nice little premium for that, and uh, and subsequently in this case, you know, you're enhancing your yield about three four percent over the course of the year as, you, as you're doing this on a regular basis. So it's uh, um, you know, there's lots of opportunities out there. You just need to know what to look for. And we're going to, uh, uh, you know, focus on uh, that tomorrow morning. But a, a good example, as I say, you choose the stock first. I mean, something that you're comfortable yeah. with, you know, that's got quality. And then from there, you say, okay, is there a, uh, you know, an option strategy? Like, you know, I know that AT&T sell, uh, sells at about 36 bucks US. The yeah. dividend already yeah. is five and a, five and a half percent, basically. So, what we're saying is that you turn around and you say, let's give someone the right to purchase that thing, uh, you know, say at, at $40 from us. And yep. uh, so in other words, if they take you up on that and they take it at 40 bucks from you, again, once again, uh, you know, you make a little capital gain, but let's say you do it out for the end of the year, you know, you're throwing another two, 3% on, the, on, the, on top of that. And uh, that's why you can tell my enthusiasm for this, because I think done right, this is a very conservative strategy that helps bump up the yield. And I, I just know from all the stuff I get, Jason, they're dying for that. <laughs> Absolutely. You know what? I, I explain it like the real estate market. Find, find a good neighborhood, find a great house with a solid foundation. And, uh, you know, and rent it out and, you know, wait for the market to appreciate and subsequently collect some rent, uh, you know, as, uh, as, you're, uh, as you're waiting for the market to, to move in your favor. And um, it is a strategy that I think is, uh, everybody's going to need to look at uh, inside and outside yeah. of their uh, RRSPs, which is a very important consideration. You know, you can do this inside your registered account. So, you know, with the search for yield being as, uh, as significant as it is, um, you know, in my opinion, and Michael, I know you share the same sentiment, this is really one of the best ways to achieve that objective. Well, people can come on down. Go to moneytalks.net. As I say, we've got uh, some complimentary tickets there as well as others. You can pay for them too if you'd like, but we have some complimentary tickets. Just go to moneytalks.net. Click on the Desjardins uh, banner, Michael Campbell's Money Talks Desjardins online brokerage. Just click on that. And you can come on down 10 a.m. Jason uh, Ayers, president and founder, LearnToTradeGlobal.com. Jason, thanks for finding time for us. Thanks, Michael. Have yourself a great day. Hey, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to come back. This is a guy. I got John Johnston here. He's the guy who told us over two years ago, look for a 70-cent dollar. He's here at the World Outlook Conference. He'll join me live in just uh, about three minutes' time across the Chorus Radio Network. 
broadcasting live from the World Outlook Conference. I'm glad you're with us here. Hey, if you can't be with us, I, I know Sheila Chambers is uh, laid up. She's ill. She's in Lanceville, and she can't be with me this weekend. But uh, she can also go online to moneytalks.net, and you can purchase the online video. And it's just like being here, only with less parking. John Johnson joins me right now. This is what happens, by the way to all good, no, great economists. They become chief strategists for Davis Ray, joining us here uh, from Toronto. Great to have you with us. Pleasure to be here, Michael. Uh, great talk last night, uh, and I know people are interested. I mean, look at the level of volatility. I mean, to me, that's when people's attention gets peaked. I, I, I kind of figured they finally got that the Canadian dollar had dropped in a way that was a, a much higher level of consciousness. You know, pay eight bucks for a cauliflower head or something, and I guess finally, people are interested. Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> The reality is, is a weak Canadian dollar hits and hurts everybody, yeah. and it only benefits a small part of the economy, the manufacturing and the trade sector. Not a small part, a significant part, but not the whole economy. Well, you know, it's, it's one of those interesting things that you can sort of benefit that group, but as a whole, I mean, you certainly don't want to devaluate, devaluate your way to prosperity, otherwise we'd be Zimbabwe, you know. <laughs> but, but your point's well taken, and I think a lot of economic analysis, financial analysis, missed that kind of a point. Or we got told this time last year when oil was falling, oh, that'll be great for other things, you know. Well, not great enough, obviously. <laughs> no, one of the things we economists as a group don't fully understand is a, a decline in the oil price does act like a big tax cut. It's a distributional effect away from the producers towards the consumer. And usually if you get a decline in oil prices that's controlled and mm -hmm. moderate, there is a benef net beneficial impact. It's not clear that when it plummets like it has, where it creates the disruption, that it has the same net beneficial effects. And the same thing with the Canadian dollar. A 10 or 15 cent decline in the Canadian dollar in an orderly fashion over a period of time helps redistribute yeah. economic activity. But when it plummets like it does, uh, it has doesn't have the same beneficial impacts. I, I thought the other thing they missed, and I was critical of this, uh, by the way, I didn't miss it. Uh, we've been calling on this show uh, for over two years that oil would get down to the level of the uh, 2008 low, which is 32.34. If it broke that, then we were looking at 26, and we got near that, and we were bouncing up against that top. But where I thought they really missed is they say, okay, that's a seven or $800 benefit to the average driver or family or something. What, they, what I really think they missed is, wait a second, all you have to look at the cost of government. Municipalities have been raising this, provincial. That money was spoken for. You know, I mean, there's been so many. We don't seem to get the simple correlation uh, that when you raise taxes, nobody that I know with any economic sense says that's the way to get your economy going. You know, no, absolutely. And in Canada, with so much imported food products, mm, that's another, that's yeah. another increase, in, a, a tax increase from the decline in the Canadian dollar. So net net, uh, Canadians aren't particularly better off from lower oil prices yeah. and all the side effects that come with it. And when you include a lot of the fees that governments have increased. In Ontario, we have a big increase in electricity rates that oh, you, that's, can't, yeah. you can't escape from. Oh, speaking of government incompetence. Yeah, yes. absolutely. Uh, it, interesting, though, if you look at the U.S. where you have a big decline in oil prices that's fed through to the pump, mm -hmm. and you have uh, a strong dollar, which is depressed yes. food prices. They've had this massive tax cut, pro you know, in excess of uh, probably close to 120 billion dollars a yeah. year, and you know they've saved it all. Yeah, they haven't spent they it. They haven't spent it. So yet. it's kind of interesting. There's something that is different amongst consumers in the U.S. Uh, that economists and strategists don't fully understand. I think they've gone through a, a period that's fundamentally changed their assessment of behavior 
uh, and now they're behaving differently, much like uh, our parents and grandparents did after the Depression and the Second World War. Well, I thought from the get-go, uh, right with this credit crunch, I said, you know what, if people change their consumption patterns, that's something that's very difficult to predict. We just have to watch it. And I think it's, it's very much like stock market players. The fear is out there. We just did a little story earlier on that the Canadians are sitting on $75 billion in cash. And I'm saying, well, first of all, I'm kind of happy they are at this moment in time. But it's a fear thing. You know, some people said, hey, I didn't get caught in that downturn. I never want to get caught in that downturn. And, and I think that's a challenge also. Uh, w when you look at the Canadian economy, we, I was just mentioning we have another downgrade of, uh, from the Bank of Canada of, of their growth expectations. That's what Stephen Polo's Bank of Canada has referred to about a year ago, saying we're getting these serial downgrades. And I think they conti continually underestimate... Uh, the impact of the oil, the ripple effect, the psychological effect, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I agree. I think there's something a little more fundamental at work as well. And I alluded to it in my talk last night when I was uh, talking about the consensus scenario for the markets. And back in 1929, the, con the, the conventional economic model of the day was incinerated by actual developments, and it was found to be inadequate. And I think that the, the, the traditional macro model that central bankers and most private sector forecasters have been using uh, died a death in 2008 because it couldn't incorporate a lot of the balance sheet effects that were happening and the fact of insolvency. Um, in the conventional model, the music never stops playing and people go broke. Yes. Uh, and I think that that's been proven Inadequate, time in, inadequate, yeah. but year in and year out, they've done such, the consensus and the conventional macro forecasts have done such a, a horrifically bad job of forecasting. If you look at the IMF's global growth forecast, oh. they've, they've done exceptionally good research on the problems in the background, but when it comes to putting it into play, into a, yeah. an actual forecast, it's been awful. And in no place has it been worse than in the forecast for the bond market where yields are going up every year. You shouldn't hold bonds. You should only hold equities. And equities have done very well over the past six years. They've outperformed bonds, but there's been a number of periods where you wanted those bonds in your portfolio. And, you know, yields are at levels that, are, that tell us something has fundamentally changed. And um, uh, Mark Leibovit last night said in his... Uh, presentation, which I fully agree with, that uh, a, a, a negative interest rate and a 1% 10-year bond yield are not signs of a healthy economy. Yes. <laughs> Where in the conventional yeah. economic framework, that's a great sign. Those low yeah. interest rates are the best thing ever. Let's, let's talk. We only got a couple minutes here. So let's talk about, uh, you know, everybody listening today is going, look at this month. I mean, we had the worst start in stock market history in China, as an example. We all know the volatility. I just mentioned a few moments ago, 400 points up on the Dow yesterday because Japan goes to negative interest rates, or at least that looks like some of the motivation there. How do you think an individual investor should approach this? And we have RSP season now, so you've got a lot more people kind of interested in this. I think that at the very basic level, all investors have put in place either specifically or maybe in the background an investment policy statement that highlights their risk tolerances. Mm -hmm. And in a time of uncertainty, I've always found it's good to go back to basics. If you're not sure about what's going to happen, if you know the fact that people are chasing the market higher could just be short-term traders and speculators, yes. but some people could say, well, you know, maybe the market isn't going to 
keep falling, so I need to put some money to work. If, you, if you're worried that you're going to miss an upturn, I would say, sure, participate, but participate according to your investment policy mm -hmm. statement. You know, make sure you have some cash. Are there any sectors that you think we should be chatting with our financial advisors about? Or, 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 and maybe for two ways, by the way. Yeah, don't ever talk about that one. You know, stay away yeah. from it. Or on a, on a more positive note. Well, we, one of the things that we had late last year, we started compiling our sell list. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think we're at, we've seen the bottom yet in equity markets, but I think it's early, it's close enough, even if it's a year away, that start to put the buy list together because you want to mm -hmm. be ready because a lot of us are not emotionally equipped. Even most professionals are not emotionally equipped at the bottom to take advantage of it or close to the bottom. So have that list together. And the areas that we're looking at are... First off, the areas that have been beaten up badly, so the resource sectors, we like oil over the, the, yeah. the materials in Canada, uh, our longer-term themes <clears throat> related to aging populations and the need for innovation, our information technology, the industrials, a lot of industrial stocks have been beaten up by 40%, so there's some great opportunities there, and also healthcare. There's some election issues on the horizon, but certainly medical devices like Stryker and things like that are, are, are areas that we're looking at. Those tend to be multinational firms that trade in the U.S., so that's part of our non-Canadian yep. strategy. But then I still think we're going to get a big bounce in some of the energy prices, commodity prices in general, and I think the TSX resource sectors can do really well. And I think we're going to get a get big kick up at the Cana in the Canadian dollar. I just don't know from what level yet. And yes. I, I, but I think it's uh, we haven't seen the low yet. 68.07 cents, I don't think, was the low in the Canadian dollar. Yeah, but as, as, as we fully expect, the kind of, I wrote something for our blog uh, last Monday when you know oil had that 6% down day. I said, well, that's, that's it. <laughs> you know, because traders are going to come in, cover their short position. That's going to push the bounce, usually back to the, the, the former kind of floor, which was 32.34. It'll be interesting to see where we go at this point, I think, for that. Absolutely. And speaking as someone who was trained as an economist who's now a strategist, I'm at the point in time, this is the point now where all of my economic analysis doesn't help that much at this point in time. Yeah. Uh, I'm watching the markets and the sure. price action. I think that's key. Yeah. And one of the things I did highlight last night is, to me, one of the most important variables to watch is the corporate bond spread. Yeah, well, we'll keep an eye on that. John, thanks very much. Great to have you here with us, but great to have you at the World Outlook Conference. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of the speakers. Yeah, it's going to be good. John Johnson here, of course, as Chief Strategist for Davis Ray. I'm going to take a break. I'll come back. I've got a shocking stat. My God, Victor Dare's going to slide into this chair here in a moment. We've got Ozzy Jurek still, don't worry. And we've also got Joseph Schachter. So all of that coming your way right here on Money Talks. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is Victor Adair, and uh, Michael has uh, left the building, as they say, with Elvis. <laughs> no, he, has, he hasn't left the building. Michael is now uh, up on the stage here at the World Outlaw Conference. We're broadcasting live from the Bayshore Hotel here in Vancouver. Uh, Michael will be interviewing by video Greg Weldon from Florida. But here in the booth, uh, I've got Ozzy Jurek with me. Ozzy, you and I were actually talking last week on the show. Yeah. And... Okay, we're here at the World Lola Conference. You had a huge uh, thing yesterday afternoon, a real estate yeah. breakout session. Tell me about it. How did that go? Well, the interesting was that it was 1 o'clock on a Friday, and really 1 o'clock on a Friday isn't when you expect a huge crowd. We mm -hmm. certainly didn't. I didn't. But the room was packed. I mean, a 400-people room, the 700 people showed, and the overflow. Now, what that means is the interest in Vancouver and real estate as at a feverish 
peak. Yeah. I mean, when the numbers come out this January, we'll have an all-time record January in terms of sales. Now, January is not generally known, you know, as the time when people go out and, and, and buy real estate in great numbers. The spring normally, maybe the fall, but not January. So we're very interested. And the province had a picture yesterday. They featured a $2.4 million little house in Point Grey. <laughs> and so people are saying, wow, what's going on? So what is going on? I mean, did we, we talked about this, you know, the form buying that's coming yeah. in. You know, in the markets that I trade, and markets are markets all around the world, when a market gets into a bull phase, you think about the tech stocks in 1999. They kept going up and up and up, and companies that had no revenue, no nothing, are being priced at, you know, a billion-dollar mm -hmm. market cap. And people just jump in because they're afraid of missing out or something like that. And, you know, to try to sell short a market like that or even just take your profits, you think, God, I might leave a lot of money on the table. But when you and I talked last week, I got the sense, and, I mean, you're such an optimistic person. You're sort of always upbeat about the real estate market. But it seemed that even you were getting a little concerned with this fever that's going on. Well, the fever in particular, the speculative vacant land that could be possibly rezoned into high-rise. I mean, yeah. you know, $30 million for a gas station and, and some of these outlandish prices. But you know what, Victor? You know who I blame for the high housing prices is Mr. Polos, our central banker. And okay. here's why. I mean, he has, since he was appointed, he has talked down the Canadian dollar relentlessly. Mm -hmm. And we are now down some almost 30% on the dollar. Anybody coming here, anybody who likes Vancouver, it's cheaper now than it was 10 years ago because of this. So they're by. Whistler is going to be on fire with foreign money. You say, foreign money, who is it? It's not all Chinese money. We have Iranians coming. We had a German uh, financier just spent $340 million buying the Royal Center. We have, we just, uh, this, this hotel just was bought for $300 million. I mean, there's a lot of money that's coming in the city. It's genuine money, some Canadian money. But... I think that the problem is that we have the low dollar. Mr. Polo says we are over-indebted and we have too, too high real estate prices, 30% over value. And then he lowers the interest rates to lifetime lows and crashes our dollar. And I think the mistake and believe it helps experts. Well, it, it, we, on the stage right now, we have Martin Mirenbield. And Martin uh, and I have been friends for years. And I know Martin has talked about the benefits that we have that come with a floating currency. The, the, uh, if we had, for instance, our Canadian dollar pegged to the U.S. dollar, uh, we might be in worse economic shape than we would have been otherwise. Now, any, any leader whether it's a central banker or a politician or whatever, a, a corporation, any leader is going to have people that want one thing and other people <laughs> that want something else. So, you know, uh, the old saying, you can't keep everybody happy. So, and also, you know, I mean, how long has Polo has been in, in his office? A, a year or so. You can't throw all the blame on him, and I know you're not, Ed, but perhaps he's exacerbated a problem. But that's... That's the past. What we all want to know is, so, you know, <laughs> what's going to happen? Hell, we, we know what happened well, already. What's going to happen? I, I agree, but just a couple of things. When Margaret Thatcher came to power, the pound was in the tank. It was terrible. It had crashed. Mm -hmm. Under her leadership, the pound strengthened dramatically and the economy improved. We have right now the world's most largest economy, most successful economy, unemployment down by 50% in five years, which is the United States, and they're doing it with a high dollar. Okay, having, having said that, uh, let's go what's going to happen now. Um, I think that, that I don't think any crash is ahead, but I think we're going to still have a good sales here. And a lot of the money, though, that goes into those areas that are driven by foreign money, 
um, will do well. The west side, West Vancouver, which, by the way, probably has more Iranian or Middle Eastern uh, in inflow of money than, say, Chinese money. Where I'm concerned about is the outright speculative money that's coming in, uh, I think, wrongly paying unbelievable sums of money in the mistaken belief that they're going to get a high-rise zoning. It takes a year and a half to get the zoning. Our zoning, our building permits, uh, everything is stacked up months and months uh, down the road. And I think they're, they're either being let down the garden path or they have the wrong, too optimistic uh, view of the future because by the time those condos come on the market, they need $1,700 a foot. We talked about that last week where it just doesn't make any economic sense to pay a big number for a condo when you can only rent it out for a small number. The, the return isn't there. So you've got to be hoping that, you know, you can sell. Well, we, in, our, in the markets that I trade, we call it the greater fool theory. <laughs> you know you've ha you know, really overpaid for an asset, but there's going to be somebody come along that you can sell it to at an even higher price. Um, Ozzy, first of all, um, I should say first of all, but we've got... Uh, Typically, your hot properties at this time of the yeah. day, uh, we're here, kind of scatterbrained <laughs> at the desk at the World Outlook Conference, but do you have a hot property or two in yeah, mind? Yeah, we actually, you know, that's part of the interesting thing that we're talking about the hot market, and every week we have a foreclosure. This one is a foreclosure on Mission. It's uh, on five acres. It's 4,650 square feet. It's not fully finished, but it has a, you know, a, a, a 1,200-square-foot three-bedroom suite. And so it's a it's great thing to buy and then maybe spend a couple hundred thousand to finish it because the value, uh, the realtor feels is around a million five. You can buy it for a million one, but it's subject to court approval and then maybe might pick up two hundred or three hundred thousand dollars once you have finished the house. So that's one of the hot properties week. And we have a condo in Nanaimo for $109,000 that looks like a, like a real good deal for the investor. And that's uh, jurok.com. People can get a lot more information about that over there. Maybe just before we take our break, you know, last week you and I were talking about the relative price difference between, say, Greater Vancouver and maybe Seashell, maybe the east coast of Vancouver Island, the Okanagan, that sort of thing. Interestingly enough, when you and I and Mike Campbell sat together in the speaker's room yesterday okay. afternoon, Mike was actually talking about doing something about that, where he's anticipating right. that there will be that migration. You seem to agree. 100%. I mean, you know, we put our Outlook issue out every year, and it's a 57-page outpouring of my view of the future. And Victoria, which Mike likes, is one of those places that I feel really will benefit. I mean, 61% of Canadians over 65, according to an RBC study, will want to retire in BC. And guess what? A lot of them want to go to Victoria. I mean, it's, it's a gorgeous place. And there's many places like that. We get hung up. It's a big, spectacular deal we see on the front page. But hey, you can go to Chilliwack and buy a very nice home. You can buy a waterfront home on, on uh, Sunshine Coast in the million two, million three range, which buys you a front door in, in Point Grey. And so there's a lot of opportunities in the smaller towns. We, For instance, we feature five uh, towns to retire in, like Sydney or Qualicum or some of the areas on Vancouver Island. They're gorgeous. They're inexpensive. You sell your wartime bungalow for a couple of million, buy a gorgeous house in Vernon for 500000 and a $200,000 ski condo, put the rest in the bank and live happily ever after. You have those opportunities. <laughs> Ozzy, thanks for taking the time to visit with us here. Uh, we will take a break for a commercial, and when we come back, I've got Joseph Schachter is going to be sitting with me. Joseph, of course, is virtually famous here on this show for how he's called the energy market the last two years. I want to get his view. There was a big change came out in Alberta just on Friday, and we're going to talk about that royalty review right off the top and then get some more thoughts from Joseph about what's going on in the energy markets. You're listening to Money Talks.
all across the Chorus Radio Network. Welcome back. Victor Adair sitting in for Michael Campbell. We're at the World Outlook Conference here at the Bayshore Hotel in Vancouver and sitting beside me right now one of my very good friends and a guy who has made me some money, I'll tell you, the last year. Joseph Schachter. Joseph, thanks for being here. You've been telling us about the energy market. Let's go right to the hot story. I mean, the royalty review. What about that? Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here again at the World Outlook Conference. And uh, the, the royalty review process, um, when the NDP were in the early phases uh, of it, people felt they were going to be confiscatory and that they were going to go for a very big percentage of the, um, of the price of uh, oil or the revenue stream of oil. And what they've come out with is a very reasonable one. They've said the price of oil is down. They've said the industry is losing jobs. Um, and so the rate structure is that they're going to charge 1% below $55 oil, which, of course, is where we are today. Um, and that'll be before payout. That number goes up to 9% um, above $125 for the price of oil, Canadian dollar price of oil. But the uh, royalty rate after you have your cost recovery, you know, from a well, it costs you five, six, seven million, whatever it does. Once you get that revenue stream back and you paid the royalty, then your normal, your rate goes back up. Um, the starting trigger is at 25% at the uh, $55 level, but it only goes to 40% um, at the 125 level. And that's where people thought that if you had $100 oil again, the government might take 70 or 80% of it. Yeah. on the higher amount. They've been very rational in, in what they've done here. It just shows you how quickly they realize that uh, $11 billion was coming into the coffers of the province of Alberta to give Albertans uh, great benefits on the social services side. And, of course, with the price of oil coming down, that number's been hit severely. And so the reality is the government uh, came through with a very rational policy, which the industry will be very appreciative of. Okay, now you say that was unexpected. So did that mean that Canadian oil stocks did better because people were expecting them to get hammered with this uh, royalty, or what, what actually happened? Well, the price of uh, the oil and gas stocks in the last week and a half, two weeks, have gone up. And part of it is uh, we went from $26, $27 US WTI up to 33 close on Friday. Mm -hmm. um, and so the price of oil came back. Um, but to me, it's more of a technical bounce. And it was uh, by the rumor, i.e., that the OPEC and, and Saudi Arabia particularly mm -hmm. would sit down with Russia and cut back production. I do not believe that is the case. Um, I think they want to drive out the high-cost producers, and I think they also want to uh, uh, cut out, uh, you know, those that uh, are, you know, politically like Venezuela um, that have problems. Uh, they can't pay for the naphtha to, to, to take their heavy bitumen, mix it with the naphtha, and then sell the heavy oil. So, you know, if you knock off a half a million barrels a day out of Venezuela, um, and then the shale producers in the United States, you know, you knock a half a million out of that, and then the stripper oil, which are wells that produce under 10 barrels a day, um, that's totally uneconomic at uh, sub-$30 US WTI. So if you knock a million and a half barrels out of, uh, of, out of the supply side, and if demand grows by a million barrels, there's a two and a half million barrel swing. And OPEC right now, with Iran, the supply surplus is a million and a half barrels. And you can easily see that by the weekly data that came out of the EIA this week, which showed the U.S. had uh, crude oil stocks grow by 8.4 million barrels. So the United States took, took the bulk of the excess production that's going on right now. Um, and uh, the inventories, they have maybe room for another 40 or 50 million barrels. So at 8 million barrels a week, it's not going to be many weeks. And usually the windows of January, February is when you see the big bills in U.S. stocks. 
Um, I think we're going to be in a period where we're going to be very tight soon. The contangle will widen, and I think we will see a further drop in the price of oil. Um, and it could be significant and maybe even lower than what we saw just a few weeks ago. Wow. Well, okay. So just to, you had a lot of numbers there and a lot of stats, but what I heard was, okay, the price of oil has been trending down certainly since July of 14. We've got down to the, what was it, $26 mark, I think, of front month WTI. We've had a bounce here to $31, $32 thereabouts. Uh, and any bear market, whether it's soybeans or tech stocks or what have you, when it's going down, there gets to be some momentum to the downside, and then the least little thing can give it a blip or a correction. So really, in the short-term view of things, you think this little run-up north of $30 is going to peter out, we'll go back down again. But I have the sense from what I read, and I read your research every month, and I really appreciate you sending it to me, but I get the sense from you that as we look out toward the end, of this year, you're looking for some higher prices. Yeah, I think that what will happen is as we get the swing, as I've just talked about, between the supply uh, coming down and demand picking up, that by the third quarter, we're going to see um, the U.S. Uh, and the storage levels in the OECD start coming down, which will allow the prices to rally above $40, maybe even into 50 And in winter 2016, 2017, possibly even did $60 a barrel. Um, and then I think you'll see maybe $70 in winter 2017, 2018. To get the $100 oil again is going to require some kind of disruption of supply in a major uh, OPEC producer. So if ISIS is, uh, you know, as active as they are right now in Libya, uh, if there was to anything to happen between Yemen and, this, you know, attacking the Saudi oil fields with all the problems going on between those two countries, uh, a wild card like that can bring $10, $20 price rise real quick um, because of the uh, risk uh, to, the, uh, to the fields. So my view is uh, the rational view, assuming nothing disruptive happens from the, from the militaristic side, um, is we will see a gradual recovery, not like we did in 09. In 09, we went to $33, and it doubled within nine months. And then we, you know, within a, within a couple of years, we were $100 again. Um, I don't see that kind of recovery because of the just the glut that's out there, and it'll take some time to eat into it. And economic pace is coming down. Like, look at the U.S. data, 0.7% for, the, you know, for, the, for the, the most recent quarterly data. We're, 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 we're not seeing 3 4 5% worldwide growth. Everybody's lowering their pace of growth uh, in 2016, 2017. Joseph, you can hear the music. We're going to take a commercial break and come back with Drew Zimmerman on the trading desk. Joseph, I know you've got to go in the room there and tell people what to do about <laughs> your view in the future. You're listening to Money Talks all across the Chorus Radio Network. Thanks for showing up. Thank you. Welcome back, everybody. Victor Adair sitting in for Michael Campbell here. We're at the World Outlook Conference at the Bayshore Hotel. We've got a couple of minutes here at the end of the show to go to the trading desk. Uh, but before I do that, I've got to remind you that uh, Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club, a royalty-based investment in the tech space. Go to soleraclub.com for more information. Drew Zimmerman is with me. Uh, my son works with me in the trading at the short-term trading desk. <laughs> Drew, so many times on this show, I've been saying to the folks, what we're trading in the market, the only thing that really matters is the anticipation of central bank policy. Last week, when you were on the show here with me, you were talking about don't fight the Fed. Something happened this week with the Bank of Japan. Tell me about it. What did it do to the markets? Yeah, not necessarily the Fed again this week, but uh, one of the other big central banks of the world, Bank of Japan, going to negative interest rates. Obviously, the equity markets take their cue from that right away. We had the Asian markets up roughly 3%. You had 
the U.S. markets finished strong going into the end of the week up around 2.5%. It doesn't take a lot to know that you should not fight the Fed. And the equity markets really showed that on Friday. So what we've seen, of course, with the central banks around the world pumping money into the system, it's helped buoy asset prices. You said that drove the stock markets up in Asia and in Europe and then in North America when we opened. On the currency market side, uh, what was what are the, the, the two hot things that happened this past week in the currency market? Well, for me, it was a matter of saying thank you very much. We had a $3.5 run up on uh, the Canadian dollar, so we were taking profits on that. And... We were also getting on the short side of the, uh, sorry, the Japanese yen, and that was a matter of the surprise risk of adding to QE, or you know nobody was even looking for negative rates, but uh, that was the move we got, so that's worked very well for us. Yeah, in the past two months, the Japanese yen has been the strongest currency in the world, as as the market was fearful and money left, uh, uh, the rest of the world went back to the safety of Japan. The traders in the market, as we follow this data, had been hugely short the yen, and over the past couple of months had actually got to being net long the yen, and then all of a sudden, bang, the Bank of Japan hits them right between the eyes, and the yen fell, what, two cents on Friday? Exactly, that day alone. So you look at the last two trades we've done. We got long the Canadian dollar. It was the most oversold that it had been in 30 years. We look at the Japanese yen, had been the strongest currency to date of the year. It was a real flight to safety during the tumultuous time to start 2016. We thought it got overdone. All the traders that had been short the yen for years actually had a net long position ag- against the yen. So again, we just thought that was a uh, market psychology taking a market further than it should have. And, and we thought there was a good probability of a turn there. Drew Zimmerman works with me on the trading desk. Everybody, thank you very much for listening. We're here at the World Outlook Conference at the Bayshore. Michael Campbell will be back with you again next week. You've been listening to Money Talks all across the Chorus Radio Network.